Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. Now, coming up on today's programme, what does the newspaper industry in Ireland look like today? And could printed newspapers become a thing of the past much sooner than we think? We'll hear from Ireland's largest media group chief. Dare more progress? It's the name of the new German government's blueprint for modernisation. We'll examine the economic and political landscape in Germany as rising COVID cases challenge the new three-party coalition there. And finally, despite entering the 21st century as America's most valuable corporation, how mistakes at General Electric transformed it from an American dream into a cautionary tale of corporate chaos. But first up today, independent news and media and its associated national and provincial titles have been a cornerstone of Irish news for decades. In the past, INM was synonymous with two of the biggest names in Irish media, the Tony O'Reilly and his family and Dennis O'Brien. Indeed, at times, what went on behind the scenes became a story in itself. But in 2019, the news group was taken over by Media House, who bought it for £145 million. Earlier this year, it announced it would rebrand to Media House Ireland. And here to update us on what's been going on is Media Media House Ireland publisher Peter Vandermersch. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today on News Talk. Good morning. Peter, before we talk about Media House Ireland, um, we might just you might just tell us a bit about the background of the company. What's its backstory? The background of Media House is basically we're a Belgian uh, company. We're from Flanders, and uh, that's interesting to mention because Flanders, it's about Ireland. It's six million people. It's a Catholic country. Uh, it, uh, the DNA of uh, Flanders and uh, Ireland is a bit the same. And I can know it very well personally because I'm married for more than 20 years to an Irish uh, uh, woman. Uh, but also the way we do business, uh, uh, it's, it's a bit uh, similar. We started there with a couple of newspapers. Um, like five years ago, the company went into the Netherlands, ob- an obvious market for us because it's also Dutch speaking, like Flanders is Dutch uh, speaking. And then indeed in 2019, and we shouldn't uh, underestimate that, after being the biggest company in Belgium and the biggest in the Netherlands, we decided to come to Ireland because we could uh, acquire uh, INM and it's a big step because it's the first time outside or let's say home market English speaking market and uh, since then we also acquired uh, uh, newspapers in Luxembourg and now recently in Germany so it's an ambitious uh, uh, company and at the other hand a very careful cautious company we never pay too much for uh, the, the the newspapers we uh, buy uh, we really try to make from newsprint uh, papers uh, media companies uh, uh, in digital and audio a podcast is a big thing uh, in the company so that's basically a bit the x-ray of what uh, media house is still uh, owned by families uh, we're not uh, uh, listed uh, and that gives a, a certain um, yeah a certain um, uh, foundation in the company which makes us I think quite quite strong because these families really believe in journalism and what we're doing yeah um just that question of why you came into the Irish market then is quite interesting to me you know the Irish market is is very strong you know in terms of media presence already uh, it's it's very competitive uh, but the national and regional papers struggling a bit and some would refer to yep. that press industry as a sort of sunset industry so um was it because it was a great bargain and was that why you looked at it? 
It was a combination. It's uh, clear that uh, we looked at several markets, uh, also outside Ireland, uh, obviously. But here we had a chance and we believe in, uh, we, we thought it's a small market. That's uh, a bit, uh, as I said, the size of the markets we uh, we know. And uh, we thought the company was very interesting because lots of people say it's a sunset market, but in Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, we're doing better than ever in the history. And the history also there goes back 150 years uh, because uh, we're trying to uh, turn print into digital. And there it works very well. And here we saw a market at least the company, INM, uh, which was maybe strong in uh, print, but was not strong at all in digital and did not really have a strategy in uh, digital. We didn't have digital subscriptions, uh, for example. So we thought with the knowledge we have and with the experience we have in uh, Belgium and the Netherlands, we can try to bring it to uh, uh, Ireland and try to develop here, even if there's lots of difference, obviously, uh, 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 with uh, the markets we know, but try to develop the company uh, here. And it's true. It's a, a busy market. Uh, we are amazed uh, that the power of RTE is so, so big here. Uh, 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 we're, we're even a little bit uh, unhappy uh, with that. Everywhere you have public uh, services, but here in Ireland, RTE is protected in a in a very strong way, and sometimes is killing a little bit the the entrepreneurship of the of the the sector. Uh, but it's things we knew when we came uh, here, and we're here now for almost three years. And I have to say, we're further in our plan than we thought we would be by the moment. So we're quite happy with the with the, the decision we took in 2019. Yeah, Peter, I might come back to that transformational change within the, the group in a moment. Yeah. But for now, I, I'd like to just pick up on those comments you've made about RTE. Um, the government has recently commissioned a report on the future of the media. Uh, we've heard it's reported to government, but things have gone very quiet there. What would you like to see from that report and what would you like to see the government do? Well, we would like uh, a, a playing field which is level. Uh, yes, in every market we are in, and yes, in every European market, we have strong public players. And I'm, I, me myself, I'm an advocate for strong public uh, players. But strong public players shouldn't harm the private uh, players. Here we see a market in which RTE gets lots of money from the uh, government, gets lots out of the advertising uh, market, markets where here new stock is fighting for, where we are uh, fighting for. And you have the strange situation in most markets in Europe, uh, people uh, kind of start in public services and when they really want to make money, they go to private players. Mm. Here in Ireland, it's people start with private players. When they really want to make money, they go to RTE. And this shows that that market is not functioning as it should. And so we hope from that report and we co collaborated and we're really hopeful that the government tries not to be a government of RTE, uh, and that the Minister of Media is not the Minister of RTE, but the Minister of Media, in which we create uh, a level playing field in which Newstalk, uh, The Independent, RTE can all can have their role. Now we, we, we see an RTE which basically is saying we want to do everything, we want more money uh, for it, and we want uh, that money to come from the taxpayer and from the uh, the market. And basically we don't don't care what's happening with the sector. And so in that sense, we hope that the government brings some, yeah, some, 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 some balance in the whole, in the whole sector. And one of the things you mentioned there is advertising. You feel that the state advertises too much with RTE and not with the uh, independent sector? Well, we, we feel that uh, in uh, Belgium, for example, the, the, 
the, there is very strict uh, restrictions of advertising on uh, the public uh, service here for 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 people like me. And and when you come to I when you you born in Ireland, you don't see it anymore. But it's very strange to see the nine o'clock news uh, in the middle of the nine o'clock news suddenly advertising on public television. Public television shouldn't do these things. Public television should probably be uh, be paid for by the taxpayer, and then leave the advertising market to the private players. Things like that are being done in in Europe. I hope that the, the Commission uh, listened to clearly things uh, which we have been uh, uh, saying. And let's let's see now. We don't want support as such. We don't want money. We don't hold our hand up uh, as Media House Ireland to the government say, "Give us money to to make our newspapers." No, we really believe in a in a fair market. Market. We will play in that market, but the market indeed should be a market in which you're not um, uh, uh, not hindered by what uh, the government and the public player is trying to do. One of the other things you mentioned there is about talent. Do you find that that's a it's a problem for you acquiring talent? You know, you're training people and then they're going to what RT is that what you mean? Yeah, in some cases it uh, happens. I have to say that's a little bit the name of the game. Uh, uh, but indeed, sometimes it's frustrating uh, in general to see uh, for talent, but also for example for our websites we're investing lots of uh, of uh, money and energy in the websites uh, and then you see RTE doing with more uh, money and more t- uh, uh, people which are being paid better than we can pay uh, uh, doing basically what we are trying to do and there you see there you think okay this is th- there is something wrong here and let's let's hope that uh, that uh, that commission uh, which I think did a serious uh, job. Let's hope indeed that uh, the results of that uh, uh, job are indeed uh, trying to create in Ireland a healthy market for public players with what because uh, once again they should be the, uh, uh, there but also for private uh, uh, players. Peter do you have a time scale on when we might see that commission report coming out? I heard that it would be by the end of the year no, we are the end oh. of the year so I hope it's uh, it's uh, every day uh, uh, and we're really waiting uh, for it uh, with, with lots of expectations. Okay we might we might return to that in the weeks ahead if it is, if it is published with you. Can I just come back to your own business model for a second um, I read in an interview with you from uh, July of 2020 where you said and I quote we love print but we believe that digital is the future I still think we do not realise here in Ireland how quickly print will disappear um, and how radical we must become in becoming digital end quote is that still your view and if it is how long do you think you'll be printing the Irish Independent seven days a week is it destined to become a much yeah we really I I still believe obviously that uh, digital is the future uh, and we shouldn't forget print Uh, we still have a Sunday Independent today as today today more than 500,000 Irish people are reading the Sunday Independent that's quite something half a million people are reading the Sunday Independent almost 500 million people are reading today the the, the paper copy of the Sunday World two of our, our papers so this is very uh, strong and print will stay there that's the belief of our group definitely on Saturdays and Sundays we know how it works at the table at the breakfast with your partner uh, you have the papers with all the supplements and the coffee and the croissants it's a wonderful experience during the week if you take the dart how many people are reading the newspaper 
not anymore. You see people reading their phones and hopefully they're reading news on their phones. They're reading our websites. Uh, some of them are paying for these websites, are taking subscriptions uh, on it. So the, the name of the game is indeed to keep print as long as possible and as long as people want it because I'm not so much interested in print or digital. I'm interested in journalism and we want to bring the journalism there where the people want it. For centuries they wanted it on paper. Now definitely the people under 45, 50, they want it on their uh, mobile uh, phones and in the weekend uh, in paper. They want it more and more in podcasts. That's why we're developing also uh, audio and, and uh, uh, podcasts. So we really have to balance that whole whole transition and in the end and how long it is uh, uh, the, the the seven days a week paper I can't say at a certain moment uh, uh, we made plans in the Netherlands that maybe by 2025 some of our papers wouldn't uh, be printed anymore uh, Monday Friday uh, it's clear that print is more uh, uh, resilient than sometimes uh, uh, we think but somewhere in, at the end of the road paper will disappear definitely for Monday Friday and will be replaced by digital once again on Saturday and Sunday we really believe in, uh, in print and do you see a timescale similar for here for 2025? I don't think so. I think uh, when we see how strong the paper market is uh, uh, here also during the week, the independent uh, during the week, again, it's hundreds of thousands of readers still reading the paper on uh, print and we have to value these readers and as long as the demand is there, we will print. Obviously, we would be we would be stupid not to, uh, not to, to do it, uh, but it's clear that there is a pressure on that uh, market and that it's a market in which more and more people uh, switch to to digital subscriptions. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Peter Vandermers from Media House Ireland. Before we move to the digital subscriptions and examining those numbers, um, is there a difference between the regional titles and what happens in the national press when it comes to the printed that's physical a good, paper? That's a good question. Our experience, we have strong regional titles. We have the Kerry Man, we have the Sligo Champion, the Wexford People, uh, part of the group, a very strong uh, 10 or 11 uh, regionals. And the regionals are more resilient in print than uh, uh, nationals. Uh, uh, they're very close to the people, literally very uh, close to the uh, people. We saw it during COVID that uh, lots of these regionals really went up in uh, the number of uh, uh, copy sales and that's good to see. It shows that local journalism, and we sometimes underestimate it uh, everywhere. In Paris local journalism in the rest of France is underestimated and in Amsterdam local journalism in the rest of the Netherlands. Also here in Dublin we sometimes underestimate the power of our local papers, be it in Kerry, uh, Wexford or, or, or Sligo. And when you see these numbers, you see how strong these uh, numbers are are being kept up and uh, and there indeed how many hundred thousands of people mm. also in Ireland are, are, are really linked to their uh, local paper. There is a huge tradition in Ireland of having that regional paper Definitely. in your house and it hangs around the house for a week. You know, you pick it up and similar to a Sunday newspaper That's where it. you're constantly dipping That's in it. and That's it. With lots of this journalism in these papers, you don't win big Pulitzer Prizes, but they're crucial uh, for these people because it's about very concrete, uh, things. It's about uh, a bridge which uh, doesn't function anymore or uh, or there is no electricity or the local GAA which is so important mm. in, in the lives of uh, of people. So in that sense uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in local uh, journalism and I admire these people doing it uh, and being very close to their uh, readers and advertisers because let's not forget also for advertisers these local papers are very very important forms to, 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 to get their clients yeah. to, to talk 
to, to get their message to their clients. Yeah, and they've been a great support, I think, to local newspapers during COVID-19, which they have been very important in getting out the local news. And Definitely, having, yeah. and, and getting out the messages. And uh, and, and so in that sense, it, uh, COVID and the whole crisis in COVID showed uh, again how important that local uh, news uh, coverage and, and local news uh, operations, uh, how important they are. Peter, you've talked about digital subscribers um, and independent uh, news and media were very late coming to this digital uh, model, weren't they? So could you just talk to me about your strategy around digital? What were you aiming for and where is it at now? Well, we believe in journalism, as I said, and we believe in in, uh, 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 journalism which makes the difference, premium journalism. And so when we arrived here, when we bought uh, the uh, INM, we were amazed that... uh, we were giving away online so much of that uh, journalism. We believe in a in a hybrid model. We believe if you go now to the independent.ie, there is lots to be read for free, but there is also 20%, 25%, 30% behind the paywall because there we believe if our journalists make special analysis, if they have scoops, if they um, uh, have uh, interviews which are uh, special, you shouldn't g- uh, give that away for free. That has a value. And, and that's why we started in uh, February of uh, 2020, so almost two years ago, we launched a subscription on uh, independent.ie. Lots of people predicted, and it was a bit strange, even within the company, lots of people predicted people never will pay money for this. And for me, Be- that, why, this, Peter? Because they were so used to having it free. The, for yes, so long. they were used to having it free. Once again, and we discussed it, uh, they can have it free on RTE. <laughs> so I said, then we will be better than RTE. We will have better premium uh, content than uh, RTE. And the strange thing was that lots of people in our own company did not believe in the product we were making. I jokingly, I said, we like, we're bakers and we're making croissants and we're giving the croissants away for free uh, because we think people won't, won't pay for the croissants. I say, let's make wonderful croissants that people are willing to pay for the croissants. Okay, well, and let's talk about the number of croissants then. Yeah. How are your targets going? How how are well, your subscriptions Well, the, the nice now? thing is we launched in February, so so a month before COVID broke out and, and uh, uh, it may be a paradox, but COVID helped us because people said, we were stuck at home and started to take subscriptions to uh, to uh, digital newspapers. So we were in our business plan for 2020. We were hoping to sell 10,000 uh, copies. We had at the end of the year, we had 30,000 uh, copies, three or 30,000. And now we are almost one year uh, later, we will end the year at uh, between 45 and 50,000 copies. So it's really a big success. It shows indeed that if you make uh, good journalism, People, of course, are interested in in uh, paying for it, and once again, we have been helped by the COVID uh, crisis, and now uh, it's it's up to us to make sure that we do good journalism about all kind of other things, so that people stick to their subscriptions, or that more people take a subscription. Speaking of your growth, then you've recently launched a, a Northern Ireland edition of the Sunday Independent. Can you talk to me about the strategy behind that? What you're thinking there? What yes. Are, well, the strange thing there also, we have two uh, papers in the north, uh, two tabloid papers. We have Sunday Live there and we have Sunday World uh, North uh, there. Together they're selling uh, around 50,000 uh, uh, copies uh, every every Sunday. And we didn't have uh, an own uh, Northern Irish version of our main newspaper, the biggest newspaper in Ireland, biggest selling newspaper in Ireland is the Sunday Independent. There we have one edition. And obviously some of these editions, some of these papers were being bought in the north. We had about 5,000 people in the north buying the Sunday Independent. But we said, why shouldn't we 
uh, make a, uh, an own Northern Irish uh, version of it. We have two, two uh, tabloid uh, uh, papers for the North. Obviously, in Northern Ireland, they also have the British papers. But we thought we can develop all journalism in the North. Once again, we really believe in journalism. Uh, once again, my wife being from Tyrone uh, and me knowing the North quite well for the last 25 years, I thought, why shouldn't we develop the Sunday Independent in uh, Northern Ireland? So, we launched a couple of weeks ago, indeed, uh, the Northern Ireland version. We doubled our sales until now. It's a bit early day, obviously, mm. uh, but we went from five to 10,000 uh, copies every Sunday, so we're quite happy with that uh, initiative. And can I ask you, Peter, about the content there? How does it differ from the content in the Republic of Ireland, or does it? Have you got dedicated Northern Ireland yes, stories Yes, we have a couple pages? of, the, well, we have several uh, dedicated Northern Ireland reporters and columnists, so some of the columns which uh, we have here in the South are being replaced uh, by uh, by Northern Irish uh, uh, voices, and it's each time, obviously, it's a bit difficult. Uh, uh, what will we replace? What will we not give, uh, which is in the South? So it's a bit balancing act. It's also, as I say, early days, so we, we have to uh, develop it. But obviously, we want to make more journalism about Northern Ireland in that Northern Irish version with the, the small stuff we have there and which we hope to develop in the next year. So in terms of competition here in Ireland, uh, whether it's North or South, who do you see as your uh, biggest, um, I suppose, competitors? Is it the traditional print media? Is it a combination or well, is it online platforms? Yeah, I, we always say the biggest competitor is time. Is uh, uh, Are people spending time with your uh, medium or are they uh, watching Netflix or uh, going out and uh, swim with their children or whatever? So the biggest competitor is time. In traditional uh, uh, terms, obviously, uh, since we're more and more in the digital space, Every digital uh, player is a is a competitor, uh, and that's uh, as well uh, a news talk as uh, as RTE as the Irish Times, uh, uh, and and definitely also the British uh, uh, paper. So in that sense, uh, the game is being played harder in a digital world than it used to be. I'm old enough to remember uh, the pre-digital uh, times. Now every player in the world, if you want a wonderful story about Jeffrey Epstein, well, you can read that story on the Guardian. You can read in the New York Times you can read it on RTE but so we better have the best one and, that, uh, and that's one side of it from your perspective but advertising is another one that's it advertising and that's why that's what uh, why we're sometimes a little bit agitated uh, I realize about uh, RTE that we say look uh, we have to get money out of the market to produce that journalism we believe in journalists but journalists wants to be paid at the end of the month we pay them with the income from the readers and the income of the advertisers so it's a hard uh, a hard game. Once again, uh, we're not complaining. Uh, uh, the, the, the year 2021 is almost over. We end the year with a very beautiful result again. So we're a healthy uh, uh, company, but we have to be very, very, we have to work very, very hard to do that. Um, what's your plans for the company going forward? Has COVID-19 changed uh, your, your future plans for Ireland in any way? It, not really. It speeded up some plans, okay. uh, as I, and in the good sense, and the, or in the one sense and the other sense, in the sense that uh, uh, print uh, during the weekend uh, during uh, COVID uh, was sold more than ever. Uh, so it shows the importance of our print products in the weekend. Hence, uh, our initiative in the in the north on Sunday uh, uh, too. Uh, it uh, also speeded up the whole digitalization of the uh, company. I talked about the uh, uh, subscriptions. So in that sense, probably during that eighteen months of 
COVID, we had an evolution of uh, what in normal circumstances would have taken probably five years. Mm. Uh, and, and in that sense, it put the company under pressure because it's a, a transformation process. And we all know transformations are sometimes difficult. People have to, 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 to work, behave in another way. Working at home is much more difficult than working together in a newsroom. And we managed to, to, to do it uh, from can, home. So in that sense, it can, speeded up things. Can I pick up on that? So newsrooms have invariably changed quite considerably Definitely. in COVID-19. Yeah. Um, how's that work for you? Do you see returning to a newsroom that we might have you know, known in the past? Or do you think there's a more hybrid model coming? Do you yeah, I think uh, we we all are uh, thinking how the hybrid model will, will work. The strange thing was, if you would have said uh, the 16th of March of 2020, can you work from home and make your newspapers from home? Everybody would have said, not a chance. And uh, two days later, we made uh, all our papers from home and it worked well. And, and were uh, you able to do that? Uh, yeah, yeah, and I have to say, I admire lots of people, sometimes in difficult circumstances, with uh, three children and their dog on their lap, uh, 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 being in meetings and writing articles and things uh, things like that. So, so it worked well. It's now more difficult to come back to the office because uh, being in the office and being alone doesn't help. Uh, mm. uh, altogether in the yes. office is not possible yet. So we all are thinking about what's now the best way to make sure that people can work a couple of days in the week at home. And it's clearly what they want and where lots of them are most productive, but not losing the social fabric of being in the in the newsroom and brainstorming, having coffee together, making jokes together, going to the bar together, to the pub together to have, to have a beer because that's all crucial for, for what we do. Well, you, you just mentioned your office is there. Um, you've got lovely um, office space down in Talbot Street. Do yes. you see you changing your footprint to become a smaller operation? Yeah, well, we're in the first place, we want to stay in, in Talbot Street. And uh, because I, I have to say, I, I fell in love with Talbot Street, strangely enough. I, I wrote a column not so long ago to say if Talbot Street would change that UNESCO should uh, come in and save Talbot Street with all its strange uh, uh, people in the street. And, and sometimes it's a bit dangerous and a bit uh, uneasy, but it's a wonderful uh, street and we belong uh, to Talbot Street. But uh, we, we're in the midst of uh, changing uh, the building indeed to make sure that uh, there's when people come in that there's more meeting uh, spaces so that we're kind of preparing the building so that the building also will be a part of that hybrid uh, uh, working less uh, office uh, offices as such less desks but more uh, spaces where people can meet can uh, brainstorm can sit together uh, uh, and i think that that for lots of, of companies in the future, this will be one part of the hybrid working. When people come in, how do we make sure that then they not sit behind their desk and do what they could do at, uh, at home, but that they're, they're talking to each other, that they're meeting, that they're interacting with each other. So Peter, you know all about the tensions between the Flemish and French speaking communities in Belgium. You've worked in Brussels, the headquarters of the EU. How much did you appreciate that the Ireland of Ireland could be affected by Brexit before you came here? Yes, I, I definitely I followed it very, very closely. And obviously, uh, as a person, but also as, as a company, we're worried about it. Uh, uh, not in the last place, because we have a newspaper in the north. We have the Belfast Telegraph is part of our uh, of our group, is in the UK, uh, is in a, a non-European uh, or non-EU uh, UK uh, at, the, at the moment. So we had to, uh, to, to follow that very closely. I have to say, like mo- most of Irish people, I think, I'm uh, in a very positive way 
surprised by the way that the European Union supported Ireland and that indeed the border uh, uh, on this or the possible border which would emerge again on uh, on this island of Ireland became one of the three most important uh, issues during the Brexit uh, negotiations. Uh, it's clear that that uh, Ireland belongs, I think, to the to the EU. It's clear that the situation of Ireland with the uh, uh, United Kingdom, which left uh, the EU. Is became more difficult, and at the other hand, maybe even more uh, gives more possibilities for uh, for uh, Ireland. So it's early days. Uh, we have to see what happens now in the north with uh, with the protocol, with the tensions uh, uh, there. It's clear that that the whole of Europe and don't underestimate. Obviously, I still have lots of contacts in Amsterdam and Brussels. How many people are? almost every week asking how how Ireland is now with the protocol, with these... Uh, so the, the eyes of Europe are still on Ireland and, and the Brexit and it's very important, I think, for Ireland to realise that. So you know a great deal about Ireland because your wife is from here. Is there anything that has surprised you about Ireland, the good or the bad? Well, I knew Ireland, of course, very well because of my, my wife and my Irish son. And uh, what I said professionally, uh, the, the situation of, of the public service uh, was, uh, but we discussed that. Uh, uh, one of the, the, the things which uh, sometimes surprises me more in general about uh, Irish is that uh, Irish think the whole time that they're very special, uh, that they think only in Ireland this can happen. Only in Ireland we can uh, have situations that uh, people try to avoid taxes. Only we Irish, we come too late for me. Meetings. We and then you think no no you're not special at all. It's also in Belgium. It's also in the Netherlands. It's also in France. It's also in America. Uh, so sometimes the Irish are less special than they think themselves. This being said, I love the Irish people. It's a wonderful. It's and but that's what I said in the beginning. The DNA of Flemish people. I'm indeed born uh, in Bruges. Uh, uh, the DNA of Flemish people and the DNA of Irish people is very close to each other. It's uh, a bit the DNA of people who say don't 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 talk too much about what you're doing try to do it uh, be humble uh, uh, don't think you will conquer the world but try to conquer the world in uh, without saying it uh, it's a bit that that feeling and that's why it's very nice also as a company to be here and as a, as a publisher to to get the possibility to to, to live and work here Okay, we will leave it there. That's a fascinating insight to what might lie ahead for your company and also for us as readers and consumers. That's Peter Vandermersch from Media House Ireland. Thank you, Peter, for joining us today on News Talk. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. I'm joined now by Michael Collins, who's the Director General at the Irish Institute for European Affairs. And he's a former ambassador for Ireland to the United States, but he's here in his capacity today as a former ambassador to Germany from 2013 to 2019. So he's well placed to tell us what's happening there at the moment. Michael, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Thank you very much, Mandy. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Michael, before we get into what's happening now in Germany and look at the political and economic landscape there, can I can I just ask you, how did you find living in Germany? What's it like? Uh, like many Irish people, I've been there on weekends or conferences or even football matches. Things run very smoothly, efficient and effective. But what's it like culturally to live there? Well, it's all the above, obviously. Um, just bearing in mind, I came directly from Washington, D.C., which was, again, a very different uh, place to live in. But living in Berlin, and of course, just bear in mind, uh, Mandy, Berlin is not necessarily representative of all of Germany. Uh, but it, first of all, it's a huge privilege to be there. Um, but secondly, you're, you're deeply conscious of the fact that you were in a place which was full of history. Uh, of course, the history of the last, in the last century being, being a history of kind of dark clouds of, uh, and uh, some levels of, of disaster. But I mean... Uh, you know, so 
got to know the Germans pretty well over a six-year period because I was there for quite a long period of time indeed and, and got to know them pretty well. The one thing I would say is that, you know, uh, they're not all, uh, you know, obviously there are certain stereotypical images of the Germans, not the least of which is that they work a lot harder than we do. Uh, but I can tell you uh, the reality is at times uh, somewhat different. Uh, they, 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 they work, obviously, uh, to the extent that they need to work, uh, but they don't go an awful lot beyond that. And I, I think they, they know how to enjoy themselves as well. They know how to uh, enjoy their leisure time in particular. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we, 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 I say we had an opportunity to get to know them pretty well. And overall, I found, found it to be an extremely friendly place with a really kind of nice, positive reflex uh, towards Ireland in particular. So we felt uh, very, very welcome. Uh, and grow, we grew to, to, to like it very much and we grew to like the Germans as well very much. Um, and you've worked obviously with them uh, and part of their structure and their system there in government. Can you tell us how their governments are structured and how that compares to say how we would know governments and, and regional structures here? Well, it really is important, I think, to understand that that Germany, uh, maybe uniquely in Europe, uh, in fact, uniquely in Europe, has a, is, is a federal uh, uh, is, is is constructed on a federal basis. So you've got sixteen uh, individual states, some of them city states like Berlin and Hamburg, but other massive states like Bavaria or Nordrhein-Westphalia. So you have to understand that Germany, while a lot of power does reside. Uh, in Berlin and with the Chancellor and with the, the government in general there, a huge amount of power also resides uh, in, in local in local politics, uh, lo local, there's a huge amount of power at state level and some of these states would be bigger than ours in some of these states, the economies of which, like like Bavaria, would be a lot bigger now. So it's very, very important to understand when we keep on hearing people like Merkel, Merkel uh, or, or the Foreign Minister or whatever else, that beneath that there's a very powerful uh, you know, regional structure, federal structure, uh, which, for example, controls areas like education, uh, and and indeed up to recently uh, had full control over areas like health. Uh, all of these make it a much more complex structure than ours, but one that obviously that does work well. Although in more recent times, I think they've had to recalibrate or calibrate a little bit the way they've managed the whole uh, health area because of the pandemic. Mm. So it's it's a complex structure of, as you'd expect from a country of eighty three million people, uh, but obviously on, on the top of all of that uh, resides the chancellor. But she hasn't got. She hasn't got all, she has many, many powers and she's a very powerful, uh, has been a very powerful woman. Uh, but there are a lot of regional uh, governors as well, or regional presidents, as they call themselves, who are, who are very, very powerful as well. Not the least of which would be the, 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 the leaders, the prime ministers of places like Bavaria and Nordrhein-Westphalia. Now, you mentioned just briefly there the, the situation in relation to the pandemic and how they managed it there. The regionalisation and the structures within the regions were an important part of that management. I was very surprised, Michael, to see that less than 60% of people are vaccinated in Germany course, um, yeah. and how high their death rates are per day. Can you just talk to us about what your assessment is of how they've handled things and, and, and what they're doing to curb those those rates now? Yeah, well, it, it surprised me. It has surprised me. The, the rate at the moment, I think, is, it may have improved a little bit. It's gone up to sixty-six percent, mm. uh, and I think they're they're so concerned about this that the the inadequacy of this number because that leaves I don't know what the figure would be, but it leaves it's, it's way below our figure. But it would leave maybe twenty million people unvaccinated, and so they have a big problem. I think they they had a very, if I may put it in these terms, they had a very good first wave. At the mm. first wave of the pandemic, they managed very well, uh, but since then they have been uh, struggling, and now they're in the fourth wave um, of the pandemic and their numbers are truly uh, 
by, by any standards, and not least of all their own standards, are, are really, really, really worrying. So they, I think the, that there is an expectation, indeed, over the next few days, that uh, in anticipation of coming into government, the uh, 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 incoming Chancellor Schultz, uh, working with uh, Chancellor Merkel, they may have to take more draconian measures uh, to, to uh, have sort of mandates in terms of the need for people to be, to be vaccinated, because the numbers at the moment you know, 66% doesn't do it. Uh, we have we can see the difficulty even, e difficulties even here mm. being in the 90%, but over there they've got 66. Now, they may be a little bit better cushioned than we are, indeed more than a little better cushioned because of the, the really superb health system that they have. But even with all that superb system, uh, health system that they have, they really are, they're scratching their heads and wondering how it has all gone um, you know, maybe as badly wrong as it has done, because as I say, they were way ahead of the class uh, in the earlier stages, but now they are, they are, they are, they are struggling, and it is beginning also to affect, uh, understandably, um, the economy and just the reopening, uh, the reopening of society in general. Do you think that the having the election and the talks after the election has maybe distracted them from the the pandemic and COVID nineteen? Do you think that's had a played a part? I don't know that it has. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, there's no getting away from the pandemic. Mm. The pandemic is just so ubiquitous, so so deadly and 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 so overwhelming that I, I election or no election, um, they, 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 you know, they they had to had to focus on it. But maybe you know the fact that you have an outgoing government and an ingoing government, and the the obviously the new government has had to spend a bit of time. Uh, trying to manage just the uh, the coalition government agreement, the new coalition government agreement, maybe there has been a little a little bit of distraction there, uh, but I think they are very clearly in the, of, of the view now that they have to really double down on the efforts and that the current levels and the the figures that they have are unsustainable. Uh, so if there has been a little bit of distraction, uh, a little bit of distraction while they try to formulate a government, that distraction is about to end uh, very very shortly indeed. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock and we're joined by Michael Collins, who's Director General of the Irish Institute for European Affairs and former ambassador to the United States and Germany. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier Angela Merkel and she's obviously taking her leave this week as Olaf Scholz will uh, be be uh, sworn in as Chancellor. But um, can we just look at her legacy first? She's been a towering figure in Europe and seen as a leader who has been very solid in the face of, let's, let's face it, multiple crises across the EU since uh, her time at the helm. How is she viewed, though, in Germany as a leader? What's her legacy there? Well, I, I think Angela Merkel leaves office after no less than 16 years uh, in, in that office, which is uh, phenomenal at the yeah. time to, to be and, and to remain uh, popular. I mean, uh, not everybody necessarily agrees with everything that Merkel did throughout her 16 years. But, uh, but it, despite everything, and it is a rather phenomenal situation, she still remains somebody who's uniquely uh, uh, popular. Uh, and and uh, the big criticism about Merkel would be, I suppose, um, uh, you know, well, the, the, the big positives, first of all, is that, that she has maintained an extremely stable Germany throughout those 16 years. And not to be underestimated when you consider what instability has has, has lived in, in countries not too far away from Germany, uh, not that least, the least will be our own neighbourhood here. Uh, but I mean, so she has given that stability, even if at times she has been criticised uh, uh, for for uh, uh, maybe a lack of vision, mm. uh, you know, she was an excellent manager of crisis. She she but but she was not. She did not really kind of um, indulge uh, really in to any great deliver. Did she did that? Did that she didn't really orchestrate change in mm. the ways that some people have criticised her for. 
maybe that's you know I mean, people may be overly critical there I think the reality is that no matter what she did she offered um, stability at a time when when stability was most needed in Europe so that not only should Germany be grateful for that but honestly the wider Europe and not least of all ourselves here in Ireland need to be grateful because the idea that there would be anything other than a stable steady Germany at the heart of Europe. If it was anything else, I think Europe would be in a desperately difficult situation. And thankfully, throughout Merkel's reign, even if people do criticise her for a lack of vision, I think she has more than compensated that by offering stability. And I've read, Michael, that the criticism in, in Germany about her is, is that she's not only had the lack of vision, but the failure to modernise. What do people mean when they say that? What do they mean that she hasn't introduced modernization programmes? Well, I think they mean it. They mainly mean on the industrial side. I mean, there is a big concern, obviously, that that Germany and particularly some of its, its headline industries, like the headline industries, like like the car industry, are, are not obviously fit for the future. Obviously, everything is moving to um, electric. Um, uh, I think the infrastructure also in Germany has been uh, a little bit lacking, good and all as it is. I think there have been a, 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 she has been presiding over a level of frugality, maybe the big black zero budget. In other words, mm. where there was no budget excess, uh, maybe that was taken to excess and maybe investments in some parts of the economy, not the least of which would be repositioning industry, uh, you know, particularly on the high tech and maybe the car industry was something that maybe she was slow to do. Um, again, uh, you know, maybe these criticisms are easy to make, uh, but but there is a kind of a sense that maybe they didn't take full advantage of the economic strength that they had and certainly the budgetary strength that they had to make some fundamental changes in industry. Having said that, uh, and, and in infrastructure, having said that, she did do other fundamental changes, not the least of which uh, would have been uh, to, 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 uh, to reposition, for example, the nuclear industry in Germany, where she uh, simply uh, decided to, uh, to cease um, the nuclear power in Germany, for better or for worse, some people would still argue the toss on that. Uh, but so everything hasn't been, uh, uh, you know, she has done some very bold things. And of course, the thing that she would be remembered for probably most was the, the decision she made in 2016, 2017, mm. to let in no less than one million, uh, mainly Syrian refugees, but not only Syrian refugees. That is, uh, is an abiding legacy. At the time, obviously, it was, uh, it was very traumatic, uh, but they did manage. And in fact, it's turning out that the, um, the, the that immigration kind of decision that she took back in those days it would probably end up being a bonus to the economy. Yeah. When we think of how people are so uh, frugal, if I may use that word again, uh, parsimonious about letting in maybe a few thousand here, a few thousand there, crossing the channel, to think that in the space of six months, the Germans let in, accommodated and looked after one million desperate Syrian refugees. I think that is something uh, that, that demonstrated a, a human side to Merkel, which maybe up to then had not been quite so much in evidence, but that will be one of her enduring legacies, yeah. as well as managing the other crisis, like the financial crisis, uh, obviously Brexit itself and, 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 and the pandemic. Now she's maybe been, on the she, latter one, she mightn't get that, you know, the, the, the score mightn't be that high. She, she's been a hugely influential figure, not just in Germany, not just in Europe, but on the world stage, very calming right. and, and stabilising at times of great tumult. Um, Michael, you mentioned earlier Olaf Scholz, he'll be voted in as Chancellor this week. Can you just tell us uh, a little bit about him? What is he like? What can we expect from him? Well, well, first of all, I, I think, um, I cannot think really of anybody more like Merkel in so many ways. <laughs> Obviously, he's, he's a very different person, but, uh, you know, even somebody like Merkel, uh, I think I heard her, I saw reference to her recently saying that she said that she would be able to sleep soundly while uh, Schultz was the Chancellor. And this is a person from a completely different party to hers, but she knows him. So he's a well-known quantity. He's he's not a young man. Well, he's a young man, I suppose, 63 years of age. Uh, and he actually achieved 
what to me and to many uh, people who were around in Germany at that time seemed like the impossible. Uh, he was on the floor, that his party, or that party was on the floor, moving down to below 15%. And lo and behold, three or four years later, the man finds himself as chancellor and uh, leading the largest uh, political party and having outgunned in the recent election uh, Merkel's own uh, CDU party. So he did position himself as, as, as a very successfully as the natural successor of Merkel. Somebody who was you know, unshakable, he had self-confidence, sober in a crisis, uh, and all those things. Maybe lacks a little bit of passion and emotion that type of thing but if you were to look for somebody who was going to give continuity mm. uh, he, he was the person now uh, he's so not he's for, not for, on his own though in government he's got two he's other got parties he's got in government yeah so for the first time you've got the so-called uh, traffic light government but all of these parties have been in government before the Liberals have been in government before the Greens have been in government before so they're not not used to government but they're, they're, what they're definitely new is the configuration but honestly even with all of that even with the Greens in government and the Liberals in government and the Socialists in government uh, it's actually it's going to represent change but continuity all in one go if that doesn't seem like too much of a contradiction so uh, the Germans obviously voted for change but they also voted for some level of continuity and in many respects uh, that's exactly what, they, what they've what they got so I think if people are waiting uh, for something that's completely different to what they've been used to over the last 16 years they may be a little bit surprised that it may not be quite as uh, as radically different as maybe some people might expect it to be it really will be uh, it, even though it's untested uh, it is a government that has a certain level of experience, not the least of which is in Schultz himself. And I think in that sense, there will be continuity, even if alongside that there will be change as well. And finally, Michael, maybe that's no harm from an Irish perspective. Why are Germany so important in our relationship? Well, it is no harm from Ireland's perspective because all of these things, insofar as Germany is doing well, all of Europe by and large uh, can do well as well and we can do well as our largest trading partner in the European Union. Obviously, we need uh, Germany to be growing, we need it to be uh, politically stable, but we need it to be economically successful as well. And while I don't think it's economic, um, uh, the economic forecasts are that stunning, uh, it, certainly not compared to ours, the forecasts for, for this year and next year maybe are, are, are slightly low, I think uh, Germany that's doing well will, be, will automatically been I mean, in Ireland that's doing well and also it impacts on how you know what, what Germany is going to bring to the European Union the good news there is that that within this three-party government there is no ambiguity towards the European Union no more than there's any ambiguity towards the transatlantic relationship all of that is positive and in fact I think they would bring new energy into the European Union now some of that may be challenging from our point of view mm. there may be an ambition there which at times we could maybe uh, but we may, may find hard to imagine but side by side with Macron if Macron is elected next next May, I think the European Union, the vision of the European Union will be a lot stronger. Now, uh, the reality of that may not be an awful lot different, but it will affect things like the Stability and Growth Pact, you know, how we manage debt, uh, whether in 2023, after 2023, that kind of temporary suspension of the budgetary rules is going to be continued. Germany's voice in all of that is going to be crucial. Mm. And, uh, and obviously, to the extent that uh, it has a particular view on that, it affects us as well, of course, uh, because we will be bound by whatever rules uh, the new year they will apply again, particularly in relation to the Stability and Growth Pact and uh, budget deficits after 2023. So Germany affects us. I would say we, we enjoy the biggest, uh, you know, we have, we have a trading relationship with Germany, uh, which is twice as good as their trading relationship with us. Hard to believe because I think most people think that most of the trade is coming in this direction. But actually, our trade with Germany for goods and services is twice as big as their trade with us in goods and services. So we enjoy a very, very good relationship with them. And they have been with us through the whole Brexit saga. And I think in that sense, the relationship is stronger and better than it's ever been. And over the last five to seven years, we've doubled 
we've doubled our presence in Germany at diplomatic level, whether in Berlin or in Frankfurt. So, and, and Michael, sorry, ju- and that's good. just on that doubling of, of um, trade, is that Brexit related? Is that why that's happening? No, that this actually predates Brexit. Okay. I mean, we we have we have always we have enjoyed a very strong trading relationship with Germany on both goods and services. I'd say twice the level that they supply to us. Uh, I'm for I'm sure post Brexit, given the way we've been repositioning our trade, it'll have gone up even more. Uh, uh, but the good news is a huge marketplace there, not an easy marketplace. Obviously, there's nothing as convenient and as, as, as good as the marketplace that would have been next door and that hopefully will continue to be next door. But uh, Germany is a very uh, welcoming place for Irish business and we do well. And the prospects of even doing better there are, are, are there with the kind of the investment we've made at diplomatic and political level in that relationship, particularly over the last five to seven years. Well, Michael, that's all been very uh, interesting. And uh, with this new government uh, facing so many challenges, as we know too well in this country, it can take some time for parties to to bed in, particularly when they're facing fiscal and environmental issues on the scale that that we all are at the moment, uh, notwithstanding the pandemic. Um, But for now, sadly, Michael, we'll have to leave it there. That's Michael Collins, Director General of the IIEA, uh, former ambassador to the USA and Germany. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Patty. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Thomas Greiter is a co-author of a book called Lights Out, Pride, Delusion and the Fall of General Electric. He joins me now to discuss a book that he's co-authored with his colleague, Ted Mann. It's the definitive history of General Electric's epic decline. And if you're looking for a book for a businessy type in your family this Christmas, this could be the one for you. It's very accessible, even though it's about one of the largest, most complex companies in the world. It's certainly a page turner and very readable. Thomas, you're very welcome to News Talk today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mandy. Now, Thomas, General Electric is as synonymous with America as Coca-Cola. It's literally responsible for turning the lights on. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the original concept of the company and how it became so prominent and successful from the outset? Sure. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, the late 19th century uh, when electrification is, is happening and, um, you know, uh, basically... Uh, the roots of that come from the inventor Thomas Edison in, in the U.S. and um, uh, uh, there was it was a very fractured industry. There was a lot of different companies competing, um, and basically uh, the, the financier J.P. Morgan um, rolled up a bunch of these companies uh, and formed General Electric, uh, partly because, as you can imagine, to roll out electricity and produce this equipment, you need a lot of capital. We need a, a large company that can do it. Um, he recognized that, saw the opportunity, and put this company together. Um, it comes together in 1892, and uh, uh, the rest is sort of history. Uh, as time goes by, they uh, they get into healthcare, they get into making uh, parts for planes. That eventually be- turns into them making jet engines and becoming uh, the dominant player in that in that industry. Um, they're making, they're still making power equipment. They move into media. They move into trains. They move into almost anything you can think of as the decades go by. Um, they're outfitting houses with all the things that you need to plug into your electricity, all those little appliances in your kitchen. And, and of course, they're helping people and companies finance all of it. Yeah, the diversification program was quite gargantuan in its nature. And the evolution, the evolution of the company uh, was an, an important part of its culture, wasn't it? Particularly under one of their CEOs, Jack Welch, who was one of the more successful CEOs. Could you just talk us a bit about talk to us a bit about him? 
Sure. Um, Jack came in. Uh, he rose. He rose through the ranks. He came from a sort of blue collar background. Um, he spent a lot of time in their plastics business and, and really worked his way up. Sort of known for his his gruff style, very direct, wanting results. Um, didn't spend a lot of time uh, dancing around problems. Wanted things fixed or replaced, and that could sometimes include people. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was about diversification. He 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 sort of cleaned out some of the older dust and cobwebs and such uh, when he came in. Got rid of some of the more burdensome planning that the company did. Laid off a lot of people. Yeah. Earned this name Neutron Jack because the buildings would stay, the people would be gone. Um, and he, as uh, in his twenty years at the top, uh, really in the second half of that, he he really started to double down on financial services. Um, he he bought NBC, getting uh, GE back into media, um, you know, and this was, um, you know, this this these deals, these hundreds of, of acquisitions he was making, um, really gave him a lot of prominence and the stock really took off. He became sort of a, a darling in, in the corporate world. Uh, and every, it really became a household name, um, which is sort of amazing for the CEO of General Electric. Um, and really in his time, he made it the most valuable company in America. Um, and was, uh, it was, uh, you know, he, he, he then handed, you know, handed it off to an almost, an almost, uh, an impossible, uh, almost impossible shoes to fill. Yeah, um, and we might come to his successor in a few moments, but you mentioned a second ago that they moved and diversified into different spaces, like the media It was one I wanted to pick up on because it was moving very far away from the original concept of making things, producing things into uh, entertainment space. And one of the things that struck me when I was reading the book is this notion that you really should kind of stick to what you know, because their expansion into areas that, you know, moved far away from the core of their business was was kind of where, for me, things started to go awry. Is that right? I think that's I think that's right. Um, it is, as you say, it's sort of amazing to think about an industrial company buying a media company. You have to you also have to remember part of what GE's whole philosophy of itself was. There's this mythology around it that they know how to run companies, um, and, it, and it doesn't matter if it makes uh, you know car engines, jet engines, if it makes TV shows. If it makes toaster ovens, they, they yeah that that was one thing that their management excellence could apply to anything that they took over just by dint of them being involved. It was like they were guaranteeing some kind of success. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They um, if GE owned it, the idea was that the asset was worth more because mm. GE owned it. Um, and when you take, you can then take that to any industry, in, including media. Um, which we even see today companies moving into media and moving right back out because it's a very difficult space to be in. Um, but you're, you're right. I think they, they thought they could do this and it wasn't, uh, it didn't always play out this idea that you could sort of run anything and that you had sort of solved the management problem. 
Yeah, GE Capital, that was an interesting uh, manoeuvre for them. It seemed quite logical that they should branch into financing some of the products they sold, but it grew to such an exponential state. Can you talk us through its um, evolution and where it ended up? Sure. Um, It is very logical, um, right? I mean, to finance your own products or to help people buy them uh, makes a lot of sense. It's very common. A lot of companies um, and GE will continue to do it for its products that it makes. Um, but to your point, they got in more into financial services for others. Um, and, and the core of it was they were using its thriving industrial business to borrow money at a low rate that they could then lend to others at a higher higher rate. Um, and Jack Wel- under Jack Welch, he was so uh, surprised uh, at how easy it was in those early days that you could you could make money by essentially moving money around mm-hmm. um, and in some in some ways over the years it, it became a drug um, it became something that you know was so easy to make this money it was so easy to help the earnings it helped uh, it helped the, the rest of the company in that sense and um, it, it, they got deeper and deeper into it until it was half the company, which was an enormous company. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Thomas Greta from The Wall Street Journal. And that's that's one extraordinary feat that, that, from the company's perspective. But the other side of it is, of course, it was effectively becoming a bank. Um, and how was that regulated, Thomas? <laughs> Well, it wasn't um, <laughs> <laughs> because they weren't a bank. Uh, they they were an industrial company. Mm. But you're right; they were an industrial company with a gigantic bank bolted onto them. Um, and this, you know, wasn't wasn't really a problem. In fact, it was a it was an advantage that they saw. They saw they thought mm. they had outsmarted Wall Street. Right? Like we can do the things that you do, but we can do it better and more profitable because we're not regulated. Um, and they did fill. They did fulfill a role here in the middle of the market. They did lend to places where regular banks weren't as aggressive in lending. So there there was a lot of business for them. But on the corporate governance side of things, um, the story about the dividends payment and when they realized that they weren't liquid to pay those dividends was quite extraordinary. Can you talk us to a little bit about how that came about and how the exposure was eventually revealed? Yeah, well, you have, you know, in, in the financial crisis, you really took a hit for this mm. financial services business. And... Um, ultimately, in the years following, decided it needed to get out of financial services. No investors could look at GE the same. It always was a black box that was really scary because all of a sudden GE Capital was there and it was a risk. Um, so it, when they exit, they sell most of GE Capital. Um, they bring in billions and billions and billions of cash. In order to offset the loss of that, they repurchase a lot of stock, mm. which was not maybe the wisest decision for them uh, to replace this sort of core uh, cash producing engine um, with with stock. Um, and they also make other acquisitions, including a large uh, deal in their in their power business that was was sour. Um, so essentially, they, they they shut down a huge engine for them as far as profit. They make some bad deals. And yes, they are they are paying out a large dividend. Um, and it wasn't sustainable and they were they were stretching to make it but it got to a point where uh they really couldn't keep it together any longer 
So at what point do you think, Thomas, was the crux for them? Where do you think they started to become unstuck? Um, you mean, when did they start to... Realise that their, you know, their their diversification programme had become so big that as a conglomerate, they were no longer viable. And, you know, earlier, um, sorry, last month, uh, they announced that they would um, split into three different companies. When do you think that that process of moving from being GE to, look, we got to do something here, we got to restructure, when do you think that finally hit home? I, I do think it, it, it was when... Uh, Jeff Immelt, uh, mm-hmm. who was Jack Welch's successor, I think when he retired and John Flannery came in and he, John was a very different person than Jeff, much more finance oriented. And I think he was able to look at the state of GE mm-hmm. and see what was happening. Um, I think Jeff was aware that there were problems and I think he knew it was time for him to go and he thought the person after him would be able to sort of restructure or fix. I don't think, at least Jeff would say, he didn't think the problems were as bad as they turned out to be or as some have made them out to be. Um, But that was really the beginning. And you're right, you know, John Flannery was for 14 months and he was fired. Uh, Larry Culp came in and has really focused on on, on turning around the company at its uh, real core finance, making sure it's producing cash keeping costs down, but ultimately breaking up the company is where we are. And, you know, I don't think that would have been possible until now because of the financial condition it was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, and it's still not going to happen. It's still, you know, we're still looking at a more than a two year process here until this is done. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's turning around a huge tanker, but like, you know, I don't want to be so negative for our listeners here that um, it's still a very big company. It's still employing 175,000 people. It's still uh, valued at 120 billion, but it's nowhere near where it was at its heights in 2000 at 600 billion dollars. So can you just talk to us about how it is structuring itself now in those three separate parts and and what you think is is the trajectory for those going forward? Because it could make a success of this new configuration. Oh, absolutely. It's very easy to look back at the history of GE and say, oh, what a disaster. Um, but by no means can you extrapolate that into the future. Their business, their core three businesses of healthcare, uh, uh, power, which means, you know, power generation and energy and, yeah, you know, and then uh, aviation, they, they're, they're leaders in these industries and these companies aren't going to be small. They're still going to be huge companies that, um, you know, that are pretty, their, their healthcare company produces, you know, CT scans, uh, scanners, and all sorts of equipment. If, if you're in a hospital, uh, you're, you're almost definitely going to come upon general something from a General Electric. Um, power equipment, they produce, I think, two-thirds of the world power is coming from GE equipment. I mean, uh, it's an, an enormous business. And it, it's a business under change because when we talk about climate, um, there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. And then in the same with aviation. Aviation is an enormously profitable business, both in, in making the equipment, well, less than making the equipment, but the service. And uh, people up until the pandemic, people were flying more and more and more. And I think people do expect that to resume at some point. Um, so that's certainly the, the thrust behind breaking these up is, is letting them have more focus, letting the people who are running them be experts in those industries, not have to be experts in multiple industries. Um, they can really focus the investment they can control their own destiny more and 
for investors, they can buy stock in a healthcare company or they can buy stock in an aviation company. They don't have to buy stock in a company that's in different industries and you may not know what else they're in. Yeah, it's more it's more transparent in the sense that you know exactly what you're getting involved in. You're buying um, an aviation into an aviation company, not an aviation company who does a bit of media and uh, entertainment. That that's right. Um, but I think you know when people talk about the breakup or the end of GE, that doesn't mean General Electric is going away. Mm-hmm. Um, it is sort of the it's it's the next uh, the maybe the next phase. Uh, in some ways, they were a dinosaur that that managed to survive a bit longer than others. Yeah, and that era of the conglomerate uh, may be over in America. I, I think so. Of course, some people will say, hey, let's look at Google and Amazon, and they have a point. Um, but it's more global uh, in its outreach. It's not a product in just based, based in America. Do you think, Thomas, and I know you've been reporting on this for quite some time, um, do you think that ultimately... Um, General Electric was just one of those products that were just too big to fail and that ultimately it had to be supported despite all of its misdemeanors and despite some bad decision making. I, I, yeah, I think to some degree, I think that that is true. I think some of the industries they're in are, they are sort of too big to fail. Um, I mean, their aviation business alone, they do a lot of military business. Yeah. And again, there's a lot a lot, a lot of the world's planes fly in their engines. I read an extraordinary figure: like uh, every second minute, a uh, uh, GE aviation engine is is taking off somewhere around the the globe. So they're they're omnipresent everywhere. It's it's huge. It is. It is. Um, they are. You know, um, it's actually they they work with uh, CF. It's a, comp- a French company called Safran, um, and they have a, a, a very dominant position. They're they're you know, the high dependability, they've come out with uh, their latest engine in the last few years. Pratt and Whitney is really their main competitor. Mm. It's a very concentrated industry because, you know, it, it, it gets, it's like $10 billion, I think, over, you know, two or three decades to develop a new engine from a blank sheet. I mean, it's an incredibly capital intensive industry um, and it's not something that you can just jump into. Um so I think it's sort of not, it's not something that's going to go away for them anytime soon. Well, Bill Gates said, if you're in any kind of leadership role, whether it's a company, a nonprofit or something else, there's a lot you can learn from this book. Thomas, you and your colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Ted Mann, who, of course, co-authored this book, must be very proud of the work. Uh, as I say, it's a great stocking filler. That's Thomas Greta from the Wall Street Journal. Thomas, thank you for joining us today. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We've got a bit more time in the podcast, so there's extended conversations with our guests today. Thanks to the production team of Stephen Daunt, Simon Keane, Ronan Coveney and Joe Cardoza on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling.